Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. With the first in 1297 to house the Stone of Schoon, on which the kings of Scotland had long been crowned, and which had been seized by the English in 1296. Edward II seated himself in this chair, which has been used at every coronation since, and the crown was, with due solemnity, placed on his head. After the peers had paid homage to the enthroned king, Isabella was anointed on the hands only and crowned Queen of England. The consort's crown was an open circlet surmounted by eight motifs interspersed with trefoils and set with many precious stones. Gaveston's ineptitude gave rise to several mishaps on Coronation Day. There were so many spectators crushed into the abbey that a wall behind the altar collapsed, killing a knight. Even at the moment of crowning, there was little space for the king and the officiating bishops, for the crowds were inadequately marshalled. After the rather disorganised ceremonies belatedly ended at 3pm, the king and queen led the vast congregation back to Westminster Hall for the coronation banquet. All were seated, in order of precedence, but the food was not ready. In fact, although there was an abundance of provisions of every kind, victuals had been commandeered from all the southern counties, and a thousand pipes of wine had been sent from Gascony, no food was served until after dark, and when it did arrive it was badly cooked, inedible, and ill-served. The king had chosen to sit next to Gaveston rather than the Queen. Again, the lords could barely contain their fury. Isabella's uncles, her brother Charles, and numerous French nobles and knights were guests at the coronation, but they were appalled by the prominence accorded to Gaveston. When Evreux and Valois saw the tapestries bearing his arms alongside the king's, they were incensed, and demanded that the Queen's arms be arrayed next to Edward's. The excessive favour shown to Gaveston by the King seemed proof that the scandalous rumours about them were true. As soon as the coronation celebrations were over, Evreux and Valois returned to France in disgust, declaring that their kinswoman was insulted because the King preferred the couch of Gaveston to that of his wife. They may well have left a shocked Isabella in no doubt as to why he did so. Queen Marguerite left court too and retired to Marlborough Castle in Wiltshire. Had she remained, she might have been able to advise Isabella on many aspects of her role as Queen of England, but without her aunt's wise counsel, the young and inexperienced Queen had no one but her French attendants to confide in and only her uninformed instincts to rely on. She had been taught that she must love, obey and support her husband, but this was proving difficult, for already she apparently felt he was neglecting her for Gaveston 
and her pique perhaps inclined her to side with Gaveston's critics. Without warning, she had been plunged into a predicament that would have taxed a mature adult, let alone a twelve-year-old girl who can have had little understanding of what she was dealing with. Isabella was now discovering that her husband was quite unlike what she and most other people expected a king to be. For a start, he didn't even seem to want to be king. He wasn't interested in ruling England, and he cared nothing for his royal duties. On the contrary, he was quite content to share his power with Gaveston and use the advantages of his office to enrich his friend and enjoy himself. He didn't always conduct himself like a king, and he didn't personify contemporary ideals of kingship. He clearly was finding it impossible to impose his will on his barons, and was consequently and rapidly forfeiting their respect. Yet it is clear also that he thought a king could do no wrong. Edward had the oddest tastes for a monarch. Traditionally, medieval kings were war leaders and aristocrats, and their interests reflected this. They enjoyed hunting, tournaments, and planning military campaigns. Edward II certainly loved hunting and horse-racing, and didn't lack courage, but he hated tournaments, and never went to war unless necessity drove him to it, which exasperated his martially-minded barons beyond measure. It was said that if he had habituated himself to arms, he would have exceeded the prowess of King Richard the Lionhearted. But Edward was content to throw away his advantages. The barons were even more horrified by their sovereign's leisure activities, which included digging ditches on his estates, thatching roofs, trimming hedges, plastering walls, working in metal, shoeing horses, driving carts, rowing, swimming even in February, and other trivial occupations unworthy of a king's son. The tragedy was that Edward had the potential to be a great king. If only he had given to arms the labour that he expended on rustic pursuits, he would have raised England aloft and his name would have resounded through the land. Worse still, his rustic pursuits inevitably led the king to fraternise in the most undignified way with the lower orders, whose company he actually preferred to that of his nobles. His manner with the common people of his realm was affable and familiar, too familiar in the opinion of his barons, who were horrified to see him consorting with grooms, carters, ditchers, mechanics, oarsmen, sailors, villains and vile persons. And they could only deplore his friendships with artists, buffoons, jesters, singers, choristers, actors and jongleurs. To us today, some of the company he kept suggests that Edward II was rather a cultivated man. Above all, he loved theatricals and was a great patron of writers and players. Sadly, not one of the plays or interludes that he enjoyed survives in its entirety. We only have a fragment from a comedy called The Clerk and the Damsel. But even this seemingly innocuous pleasure drew censure, for most of the aristocracy of the day despised amateur dramatics as being vulgar and disreputable. The king was also literate, enjoyed poetry, and even wrote some himself. Norman French was his mother tongue, but he knew Latin too and was a copious letter writer. He collected exquisitely produced books of French romances and legends. He also borrowed, and did not return, manuscripts of the lives of St. Anselm and Thomas a Becket from the monastic library at Christchurch, Canterbury. Edward had a passion for music and employed a group of Genoese musicians to entertain him. There were two trumpeters, a horn player, a harpist and a drummer. The king himself owned a Welsh instrument known as a cruth, 
which was an early type of violin. Edward was undoubtedly a vain man. He was always elegant and sometimes showy as a peacock in his dress, and he spent a great deal of money on clothes and jewellery. This did not attract overmuch criticism because kings were expected to look the part, and with his good looks and strong physique he certainly did. He loved luxuries and was splendid in living, but was also inclined to vanities and frivolities. Given that he inherited huge debts from his father, his tastes were all too extravagant. The king loved animals. He was passionate about dogs and horses and was a skilled horseman. He bred and trained his own horses and hounds. At his behest, his huntsman, William Twisey, wrote L'Art de la Vénérie, the earliest surviving hunting manual. As a young man, Edward owned a pet lion, which, tethered with a silver chain in its own cart, often travelled with him, attended by its keeper. And he also kept a camel in the stables at Langley. Edward had a boisterous sense of humour and enjoyed practical jokes and horseplay. He once paid a royal painter, Jack of St. Albans, fifty shillings, two pound fifty, for having danced on a table before the king and made him laugh beyond measure. Another man was rewarded for amusing his sovereign by falling off his horse in a comic manner. Edward kept several fools in his employ and was not above indulging in mock fights with them. Once he had to pay compensation to a fool called Robert, whom he had accidentally injured during some boisterous games in the water. Edward was an inveterate gambler. His wardrobe accounts show that he lost large sums at vulgar games of chance, such as dice, chuck-farthing, heads or tails, cross-and-pile, or pitch-and-toss. He was also something of a gourmet with a taste for good food and wines, but he frequently drank too much and, when he was inebriated, would indiscriminately let out his secret thoughts and quarrel with bystanders for feeble causes. Even when sober, he was quick and unpredictable in speech. Edward could also be wayward and difficult, petulant, vindictive, and viciously cruel when sufficiently provoked. Higdon says he was savage, even with members of his household. Passion, anger and resentment could smoulder in him for years, and his outbursts of the famous Plantagenet temper left observers in no doubt as to whose son he was. He was weak, lacked judgment, intuition, and the ability to empathize with others, and in many ways was not very bright. He was lazy by nature, loving to lie abed late in the mornings, and often maddeningly indecisive. Failings that could be disastrous in a ruler in an age in which monarchs ruled as well as reigned. However, once Edward's affection was given, he could be demonstrative, prodigal in giving, and unswervingly loyal. In company he was congenial and a good conversationalist, articulate and witty. He was also a good and loving father to his children. The king was genuinely pious and had a special devotion to St. Thomas a Becket, which Isabella would come to share. Both made frequent visits to that murdered saint's shrine at Canterbury. Edward going sixteen times in all. The king attended Mass often, spent a great deal of time with his chaplains, and was generous in his almsgiving. He had a particular affection for the Dominican Order of Friars, whose house at Langley he founded and generously endowed. Edward's good qualities, however, were insufficient to command the respect of his people. On the contrary, his faults and in particular his indiscriminate promotion of unsuitable favourites, 
his determination to give matters concerning those favourites priority over matters of state, and his flaunting of his homosexuality, all looked set to damage the very institution of monarchy itself. Indeed, no king of England has ever attracted so much criticism from his contemporaries as Edward II did. Edward II had begun his reign on a tide of public approval, but he was recklessly throwing that away through his irresponsible promotion of Gaveston, who was now the person who is most talked about at court. The king looked upon Gaveston as his equal and blood brother, almost as a second king and co-ruler, was ruled by his advice whilst despising the counsel of the other magnates and gave him thousands of pounds from his already depleted treasury. It was Gaveston and not the chief magnates who controlled the network of royal patronage, and Gaveston who took bribes for favours. This incensed the nobles, who resented having to pay for privileges that should have come direct to them from the king. It seemed to them that there were now two kings in England, one in name and the other in reality. Gaveston's usurpation of patronage was one of the chief causes of the baron's wrath and envy. Disgust at the nature of his relationship with the king may well have been another, but it was his arrogance that was beyond endurance. According to the Vita Eduardi Secundi, Piers did not wish to remember that he had once been Piers the humble esquire, for Piers accounted no one his fellow, no one his peer, save the king alone. Indeed, his countenance exacted greater deference than that of the king. His arrogance was intolerable to the barons and a prime cause of hatred and rancour. This chronicler firmly believed that if Piers had, from the outset, borne himself prudently and humbly towards the magnates, none of them would ever have opposed him. But Gaveston did nothing to placate the barons. Tactless beyond measure, he seems to have gone out of his way to provoke their anger, without caring about the consequences. And the king, who was incapable of moderate favour, and, on account of peers, was said to forget himself, did nothing to curb his arrogance. The more virulently people attacked Gaveston, the more keenly the king loved him. Together they were playing a very dangerous game. It is abundantly clear that, from the first, Edward's marriage had made no difference to his relationship with Gaveston. In fact, it highlighted the strength of the king's excessive and irrational love for the favourite, whom he adored with a singular familiarity that fueled the jealousy not only of the magnates, but of the neglected little queen. Robert of Reading scathingly condemns the mad folly of the King of England who was so overcome with his own wickedness and desire for sinful forbidden sex that he banished his royal wife from his side and rejected her sweet embraces. Miramith reports how it was common gossip that Edward loved an evil male sorcerer more than he did his wife, a most handsome lady, and a very beautiful woman. Isabella hated Gaveston, at least to begin with, and she was certainly resentful of his influence over the king and the fact that he took precedence over her. She told her father that he had caused all her troubles by alienating King Edward's affection from her and leading him into improper company and that her husband had become an entire stranger to my bed. But there was nothing she could do about it. There was never any open rift between the Queen and Piers. Wisely, Isabella seems to have kept her feelings to herself and refrained from voicing any complaint that could prejudice her chances of establishing a good relationship with her husband. We know this because, in 1325, Edward declared that he had only ever rebuked her once, in private, 
and that was for being too proud. And even if she had remonstrated with him about the favourite, it would have done her no good. The king could hardly be blamed for preferring the company of a man of his own age above that of a mere child. And it was as a child, no more, that Edward probably treated Isabella, indulging her now and then, or taking a fleeting interest in her. Of course, to a girl reared with a strong sense of her own importance and destiny, this was insulting and demeaning, and many of the barons were incensed on her behalf that she should be so slighted, and resolved to take her part. While Gaveston's star was in the ascendant, Isabella stood little chance of exercising any political influence as queen. To begin with, of course, she was too young to do so. But it is clear, too, that she played a very insignificant part in the king's life during these early years, and was therefore in no position to counteract the favourite's supremacy. She was effectively alone in a strange country and a court seething with tensions and hostility. By now, Isabella would have become better acquainted with England's leading barons, most of whom were related in some way to either herself or her husband. Foremost among them were the Earl of Lincoln and his son-in-law, Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, the king's cousin. Lancaster was also Isabella's maternal uncle, being the son of her grandmother, Blanche of Artois, through her marriage to Edmund Crouchback, Earl of Lancaster, younger brother of Edward I. Jeanne of Navarre, Isabella's mother, had been the child of Blanche's first marriage to Henry I, King of Navarre. Thomas thus boasted many royal connections. He had been born around 1278-80 and had married Alice de Lacy before 1294. She was a great heiress, for, as her father's only surviving child, she stood to inherit great lands and earldoms on his demise. On his own father's death in 1296, Thomas inherited the earldoms of Lancaster, Leicester and Derby, which made him the wealthiest landowner in England after the king. He maintained a huge private army and had as many knights in his service as the king did. During Edward I's reign, Lancaster served the crown in various small ways and was high in favour with Edward I. On May 9, 1308, Edward II confirmed his appointment as High Steward of England. But Lancaster had a low opinion of Edward. Well-connected and blue-blooded as he was, he had every reason to expect to be the king's chief adviser. But Edward had chosen Gaveston instead and incurred Lancaster's undying jealousy. Lancaster was tall, slim and imposing, and affected a flamboyant style of dress. In character, though, he was haughty, selfish, treacherous and vicious. Like his cousin the king, he was lethargic and lacked vision or purpose. In fact, he had few redeeming features. A sulky, quarrelsome and vindictive man, he was quick to resort to violence. His speech was coarse and he was promiscuous to excess. We are told that he defouled a great multitude of women and gentle wenches. Unsurprisingly, his marriage was unhappy and childless. Humphrey de Boone, Earl of Hereford and Essex and Constable of England, was 32. In 1302, he had married Elizabeth, one of Edward I's daughters. He was a self-contained individual, prickly and quick-tempered, but also intelligent with a sense of humour. As an official in the Prince of Wales's household, he had enjoyed good relations with Edward II before the latter's accession, and had benefited from the Prince's generosity. But their friendship had been soured by Edward's excessive favouring of Gaveston, and the Earl, 
faced with a conflict of loyalties, was now reluctantly siding with the opposition. Guy de Beecham, Earl of Warwick, was a fierce opponent of Gaveston. Now aged thirty-five or more, he was an exceptionally cultured and learned man who understood Latin, was well-read, and owned an unusually large collection of books for a nobleman of this period. Warwick had served with great distinction in Scotland under Edward I, and he brought to his political career wisdom and good sense. In prudence and counsel he was without parallel. Thus his fellow magnates would often seek his advice before taking any action. Although he was also something of a thug, and could be ruthless and arrogant, the author of the Vita Eduardi Secundi lauded him as a hero. John de Warren, Earl of Surrey, was two years younger than the king, and was married to Joan of Barr, a granddaughter of Edward I. Their marriage would, however, be annulled in 1315. Surrey was a nasty, brutal man, with scarcely one redeemable quality. Although they were his political allies, Lincoln and Lancaster loathed him, and he and Lancaster maintained a private feud for years. Surrey's sister, Alice de Warren, was married to another young earl, Edmund Fitzalan, Earl of Arundel now aged twenty-three. He, too, was an opponent of Gaveston. Perhaps the most honourable and able of the magnates was the moderate Aymer de Valence, Earl of Pembroke, a tall, lean and sallow man of forty, who was the son of William de Valence, half-brother of Henry III, and therefore cousin to the king. Pembroke had been one of Edward I's most trusted captains in his campaigns against the French and the Scots, and all his life he was a true servant of the crown, a skilled diplomat who was known and respected both at home and abroad for his honesty and integrity. Pembroke, as a man of principle, deplored Edward II's reliance on his unworthy favourite, because it threatened to undermine the prestige of the monarchy itself. Being no sycophant, he too was at times to find himself embroiled in a conflict of loyalties. One baron who supported Edward II throughout the greater part of his reign was his Breton cousin, John de Montfort, Earl of Richmond, a grandson of Henry III. Aged 42 in 1308, he had been granted his earldom by Edward I in 1306. Richmond became a favourite of Isabella, and would play an important role in her life many years hence. This ends Disc 2. Queen Isabella, Disc 3. Immediately after the coronation, the magnates began to hold secret meetings. It was only now that almost all the barons rose against Piers Gaveston, binding themselves by a mutual oath never to cease from what they had begun until Piers left England. When Parliament met at Westminster on March the 3rd, they moved against the King's idol, accused him of encroaching the powers of the Crown, and demanded his banishment. Their spokesman was Lincoln, who, appalled by Gaveston's arrogance, had now turned against him and become his greatest enemy and persecutor, acting in what he sincerely believed were the interests of the crown. The highly intransigent and uncompromising Archbishop Winchelsea, newly returned from exile, immediately supported the baron's stand, while Gloucester and Richmond remained neutral and only Lancaster and Hewler Dispenser sided with the king. Not daring to criticise the mighty Lancaster, the other barons turned on Dispenser and accused him of being a hateful man who, more from a desire to please the king and a lust for gain than for any creditable reason, had become an adherent of peers. In fact, Hewler Dispenser was present at the royal wedding in Boulogne. 
From the first, he appears to have been on good terms with Queen Isabella, who corresponded with him occasionally, and in 1311 helped him obtain the release of the Chamberlain of North Wales, who had been imprisoned on a false charge. Roger Mortimer was tall, swarthy of complexion, and strongly built. He was one of the most outstanding military leaders of the period, tough, energetic, decisive, and versatile in his talents. Like most barons, he was arrogant, grasping, and ambitious. But he was also an excellent political strategist and a faithful servant of the crown, who was well respected by his peers. Clever, cultured, and literate, he took a keen interest in his family's history and its alleged descent from Brutus, the mythical British king, and in the legends of King Arthur. He had refined tastes, loved fine clothes, lived in some luxury, and undertook major architectural works to transform his castles at Wigmore and Ludlow into veritable palaces. Typical of his caste, he also loved tournaments, paid lip service to the knightly code of chivalry, and amassed a considerable collection of weaponry. Edward sent Mortimer to Ireland in the autumn of 1308. In so doing, he deprived himself of a valuable ally, because Roger's frequent absences would mean that, for many years, he had little opportunity to become involved in Edward's struggle with the barons. When Parliament met at Westminster on April 28th, the magnates came armed for self-defence, fearing treachery, and demanded Gaveston's banishment on the grounds that he had seized royal funds for his own pleasure and had turned the king against his rightful advisers themselves. Edward prevaricated, desperately playing for time, but although he still enjoyed the support of Lancaster and Hugh le Dispenser, Dispenser's son, Hugh the Younger, was on the side of the barons. And it was he who, with Lincoln, drafted a document in which the lords cunningly and defiantly declared that a higher duty is owed to the crown than to the person of the king. It is the magnate's professed duty to maintain the estate of the crown even if this should mean disobedience to the king. Parliament also raised the issue of the Queen's dower, or lack of it, and on May 3rd the great council of barons tried to force Edward to agree in advance to any measures they might propose. By April, Philip IV was becoming increasingly concerned about events in England and how they might affect his daughter and the alliance. After the coronation, apparently incensed at the reports brought back by Evreux and Valois, he had sent a clerk, Ralph de Rosaletti, the future bishop of Saint-Malo, to carry Isabella's privy seal and control her outgoing and incoming correspondence. Possibly, Philip feared that Gaveston might try to interfere in concerns that were legitimately hers. More likely, he wanted to establish a channel of communication between himself and his daughter. Whatever the motive, there can be little doubt that Rossoletti acted as a spy and that Philip received far more information about his daughter's situation than is available to us today. It seems that Isabella's complaints about Gaveston had also hit home, because on May the 12th it was reported in an anonymous newsletter that Philip had sent envoys to England, and two days later another newsletter stated that these envoys were to let it be known that unless Piers Gaveston leaves the kingdom, their master will pursue as his mortal enemies all who support the said Piers. There is also evidence that, at the behest of her father and brothers, Isabella covertly offered her support to Gaveston's enemies. It has been claimed that the Queen was at this time one of the leaders of the baronial opposition, but her very youth makes this improbable. 
it is more likely that the barons were only too happy to exploit her plight for their own purposes. It is likely, too, that Rossoletti acted as a channel between Philip and Isabella in these secret negotiations, and that Isabella played a more proactive part against Gaveston than will ever be fully known. As early as the spring of 1308, the Queen's antagonism towards Gaveston and her alliance with his enemies were well known. Faced with the election of Gaveston's candidate as abbot of Westminster, a monk called Roger de Aldenham urged his brethren to appeal to Queen Isabella because it was recognised that, because of her hatred for Gaveston, she would do her utmost to hinder the election by enlisting the support of the King of France and the Pope. For whatever concerned Gaveston, the Queen, the Earls, the Pope and the King of France would wish to impede it. Philip was angry with his son-in-law, not only because of Gaveston, but also on account of Isabella's parlous financial state. Aside from Edward's outrageous failure to provide her with a dower, she'd not even received small sums for her daily expenses from the exchequer or the royal wardrobe. Instead, she had been entirely dependent on the king, in whose household she had apparently been obliged to live. To add insult to injury, her husband had made her no gifts nor shown any mark of favour to her, apart from granting three pardons to criminals at her instance. On his part, Philip had had to raise £200,000 through taxation for Isabella's wedding endowment, a measure that had met with many complaints and angry refusals on the part of his subjects. Yet she had evidently received not a penny from her husband, even though he had not ceased to shower Gaveston with lands, gifts and grants. Small wonder that Philip was indignant and ready to unite Gaveston's opponents in a cohesive party. Edward II had troubles enough without wishing further to antagonise his father-in-law, and on May 14th, in order that his dearest consort, Isabella, Queen of England, shall be honourably and decently provided with all things necessary for her chamber and all expenses for jewels, gifts and every other requisite. He assigned the counties of Pontieu and Montreuil to Isabella for her dower and directed Richard de Roxley, her seneschal of that province, to give the deputies of the Queen peaceful possession of the domains. This came not a moment too soon, for on the same day an anonymous correspondent reported that King Philip and his sister, Queen Marguerite, had sent £40,000 to Lincoln and Pembroke to finance their campaign to oust Gaveston. Marguerite herself had suffered as a result of the favourite's greed, and from Wiltshire, it appears, the Dowager Queen had kept abreast of events at court, and what she had heard had no doubt prompted her to write on her own behalf to Philip of her concerns about the favourite's influence and its effects on her niece. However, as Edward had intended, Philip was partly mollified by the settlement made on his daughter. The French king's intervention had another effect, for on May 18th, Edward realising that the opposition party was now too powerful to be ignored, capitulated to Parliament's demands and agreed to strip Gaveston of his title and banish him from his realm by midsummer day, June 24th. Just to make sure that Edward kept his word, Archbishop Winchelsea warned that Gaveston would be excommunicated if he stayed in England one hour too long. On June 4th, Edward, Isabella and Gaveston were at Langley together. But it seems likely that Isabella was largely ignored, as her husband made the most of his remaining time with Piers. Langley, which had once belonged to Eleanor of Castile, was the king's favourite residence. It was a pleasant manor-house, situated on a gentle rise on the banks of the River Gade, six miles from St. Albans, 
and it was surrounded by eight acres of parkland and 120 acres of farmland. In 1308, Edward had founded a Dominican priory in the park. Fruit trees and vines grew in the gardens, and the house, which was built round three courtyards, boasted the very latest in interior decoration and had extensive suites of private apartments with fireplaces in the royal bedchambers. The great hall was embellished with fifty-four painted shields and a mural highlighted in brilliant gold and vermilion depicting knights riding to a tournament. There was also a built-in organ. Isabella's rooms, probably the ones that had been used by Queen Eleanor, overlooked the great court. She had a great chamber, a middle chamber, and a cloister, all paved. Her wardrobe was next to her great chamber, her larder downstairs, and she even had a bathroom, which had been installed for Queen Eleanor in 1279. On June 7th, while still at Langley, the king granted castles and manors to Gaveston, as well as lands in Gascony a strong indication that he did not intend that his exile should last long. Then, on June 16th, much to the baron's chagrin, he appointed the favourite Lieutenant of Ireland with viceregal powers. On the same day, with devastating naivety, he wrote to his dearest lord and father, King Philip, begging him to intercede with his magnates to bring about a concord over Gaveston, and to the Pope, asking him to annul Winchelsea's threat to excommunicate peers. Isabella remained at Langley when Edward travelled to Bristol with peers to see him off on a ship bound for Dublin. On the day he sailed, June 25th, the King took his earldom of Cornwall into his own hands, until such time as his beloved should return. During his time in office in Ireland, Gaveston proved an efficient and successful deputy. He suppressed two revolts, executed rebel chieftains, restored royal fortifications, and won the support of the Irish nobles through lavish gifts. Edward had given him blank royal charters to use as he saw fit, so he, in effect, wielded sovereign authority. Once Gaveston had gone, the barons forced Edward to dismiss several officials from his household and Hugh Le Dispenser from his council, claiming that Dispenser exercised an undesirable influence on the king. Bereft of Gaveston, Edward was plunged into misery but over the next fourteen months he used every persuasion to get his barons to agree to his return, bending one after another to his will with gifts, promises and blandishments. To begin with, he bought the loyalty of his nephew, Gloucester, with a large grant of land. Then he set to work on the others, eventually reaching terms with Hereford and Lincoln. After that, most of the rest were willing to make terms. Isabella, meanwhile, had gone to Windsor, and Edward joined her there by July 8th. On the 14th, she left to go alone on a short pilgrimage to the shrine of Becket at Canterbury. Isabella was probably at Northampton when Parliament met there on August the 4th. By now, Edward was enjoying better relations with his barons, and later that month, Isabella doubtless dutifully acting on her husband's orders, entertained some of them at a great feast at Westminster. In response to Edward's letter of June 16th, King Philip sent his brother Evreux and Bishop Guy de Soissons to England in September. Their brief was to help bring about a concord between Edward and his lords, and thus improve Isabella's situation. The king dined with Evreux on the 21st, and it's likely that they discussed Gaveston's possible return and its consequences. Soon afterwards, emissaries of the Pope arrived in England, also bent on securing a peace. By now, 
Edward was reconciled with most of his leading nobles, but he was still granting rich wardships to the absent Gaveston, and at the end of October sent Roger Mortimer to assist him in Ireland. By November, however, a rift was growing between the King and Thomas of Lancaster. The Earl ceased to witness royal charters, and the King's patronage suddenly dried up. This suggests that a quarrel of some sort had taken place, possibly because Lancaster had divined that Edward was scheming for Gaveston's return. Although it would be some months before Lancaster finally joined the barons in opposition, the loss of such a powerful supporter was to prove catastrophic to Edward. Much has been made by historians of Lancaster's supposed sympathy for his niece Isabella. But there is, in fact, very little evidence to show that he was especially supportive of her. Fortunately, Isabella was in better case than before, for with Gaveston out of the way, Edward began treating her with greater respect and allowed her to assume, at last, her rightful place as Queen of England. She now appeared constantly at her husband's side and travelled everywhere with him. She also began to exercise the patronage that was her queenly prerogative. On December 3rd, at Westminster, she granted one John de Peckbridge of Spalding, Lincolnshire, and all the men of Spalding, exemption from paying tolls. At this time, the king made lavish grants of money to her, and gave her manors in England and Wales, along with the right to appoint priests and clerks to benefices. The King and Queen spent Christmas at Windsor with great solemnity. Isabella was now making a point of dutifully supporting her husband, which suggests that, with Gaveston out of the way, relations between them were kinder. In her innocence, Isabella may have believed that the favourite was gone for good. At the beginning of March, she made a point of dining with Richmond, Gloucester, and other royalist earls at Westminster, possibly with a view to binding them closer in loyalty to the king. In March and April, to show his gratitude and doubtless sweeten his wife and her father in preparation for Gaveston's recall, Edward bestowed further grants and privileges on Isabella. Among them were the manors of Macclesfield, Rosfair, Dolpenigan, and Penaham, and the Welsh Cummet of Menai. These grants were backdated to the previous September. On March 4th, the King ordered the immediate payment of all the Queen's gold, a percentage on payments made to the King, due to Isabella since her marriage. In April, Isabella was also given the reversion of the manor of Ellesmere. Later in March, Edward wrote to the Pope, informing him with false optimism that the barons were now ready to agree to Gaveston's return, he himself having promised to agree to certain administrative reforms. Edward was also going out of his way to win King Philip's support, dealing harshly with the Templars in his realm, and showing himself most accommodating in disputes concerning Gascony. Philip, that shrewd man, was not to be moved. On April 13th, he was still opposing Gaveston's return. But even so, Edward, increasingly desperate and as thick-skinned as ever, still had the nerve to ask his father-in-law outright to intercede with the lords on Gaveston's behalf. Philip was understandably unwilling, but the Pope proved more accommodating. On April 25th, he issued a bull of absolution, quashing Archbishop Winchelsea's threat of excommunication and paving the way for Gaveston's sentence of banishment to be lifted. But Edward had been mistaken in thinking that his barons were ready to agree to the favourite's return. When Parliament met at Westminster on April 27th, it refused his request outright. Isabella, who was in residence at Westminster at the time, must have been relieved to hear this. 
But the king was biding his time, and as he and Isabella removed to Kennington Palace, south of the Thames, for further talks with his barons, he was only waiting for the Pope's response to his plea. It arrived in June, and then he had the satisfaction of reading it aloud before a disconcerted and tight-lipped Winchelsea, who was painfully aware that he had been bested. On June 19th, Edward, still naively hoping that Philip IV would act as mediator in his quarrel with the barons, requested a meeting with the French king. By then, however, he had already summoned Gaveston home. Piers left Ireland around June 23rd, and Edward, rejoicing at his return, welcomed him at Chester on the 27th very thankfully receiving him with honour as his brother. Isabella was conspicuous by her absence. The king was overjoyed at Piers's return, and, as one who receives a friend returning from a long pilgrimage, passed pleasant days with him. The queen's reaction is not recorded, but may be guessed at. A month later... King and favourite faced Parliament at Stamford, where, thanks to the intervention of the Pope and the conciliatory efforts of Gloucester, whose sister was married to Piers, the barons grudgingly gave their formal assent to Gaveston's return. Only Warwick and Archbishop Winchelsea objected. None of the barons now dared to raise a finger against Piers or to lay any complaint about his return. Their ranks wavered, and their party, divided against itself, broke up. So he who had twice been condemned to exile returned, exulting and in state. On August 5th, the earldom of Cornwall was restored to Gaveston, and on September 4th, a grateful Edward wrote to thank the Pope for his assistance. Now that he no longer needed King Philip's support, he had abandoned all plans for a meeting. And since Edward was continuing to treat Isabella with respect and generosity and to uphold her royal privileges, Philip did not immediately choose to intervene, even though neither he nor his daughter welcomed the favourite's return. Edward's tenacious efforts to win over and outwit his barons had borne fruit, but Gaveston's own behaviour meant that this uneasy truce did not last. Rashly, the king allowed him, once more, to control the flow of patronage. But this time, Piers didn't bother to hide his contempt for those who had opposed him, or his triumph at the victory he had scored over his opponents. Now that he had regained his former status, his behaviour was worse than before. Despite having promised Parliament that he would conduct himself circumspectly and live at peace, he remained a man of big ideas, haughty and puffed up. Scornfully rolling his upraised eyes in pride and abuse, he looked down upon all with pompous and supercilious countenance, which would have been unbearable enough in a king's son. He particularly provoked the barons, by openly calling them by offensive and degrading names. The portly Lincoln was Burstbelly, Lancaster was the Churl, the Old Hog, the Player, or the Fiddler. Warwick was the Black Dog of Arden. "'Does he call me a dog?' retorted Warwick. "'Let him take care, lest I bite.' The sallow-skinned Pembroke, was Joseph the Jew, and even Gloucester, who had been a friend to Gaveston, was called Cuckold's Bird and Horson, both insulting allusions to his mother, the late Joan of Acre, who had defied Edward I and taken a second husband for love despite his lowly birth. Even Queen Isabella herself was not exempted from Gaveston's sarcasm, although we do not know what form it took. Such disrespect enraged the barons, even the moderate Pembroke. And, 
When Gaveston high-handedly made the king dismiss one of Lancaster's retainers in favour of one of his own, he finally drove the furious earl wholeheartedly into the arms of the opposition, vowing that he would destroy the favourite. The barons now accused Gaveston of filling the court with his foreign relatives and greedily appropriating the revenues of the kingdom to such an extent that the king could not meet the charges of his court. As a result, it was claimed, the queen was subjected to unworthy reductions in her income and was provoked once more into complaining to her father. By October, baronial hostility to Gaveston was once again simmering dangerously, and for safety the king took him and Isabella to York. When visiting the city, Edward I had stayed in York Castle, first raised by William the Conqueror and rebuilt in 1244-45 by Henry III with an unusual catrefoil-shaped keep known as Clifford's Tower. However, when Edward II and Isabella visited York, they usually lodged in the Franciscan Priory of the Friars Minors, founded in 1232 and relocated in 1243 to a site between Castlegate and the River Ouse. Here there were spacious apartments for visitors and gardens that stretched as far as the outworks that encircled the nearby Clifford's Tower. Whilst in York, Edward summoned Parliament to meet there on October 18th, but Lancaster, Arundel, Hereford, Oxford and Warwick categorically refused to attend because of Gaveston's presence at the King's side. Edward postponed the session and issued new summonses to Westminster for February 8th. In November, concerned at the renewed prospect of civil war in England and also, no doubt, provoked by his daughter's complaints, King Philip sent Evreux once more to England to act as mediator between Edward and his barons. The King, Isabella and Gaveston left York on November 17th and journeyed southwards. In December, in order to forestall his opponents, Edward ordered that scandalmongers be arrested and forbade any armed gatherings of the barons. He spent Christmas at Langley with the Queen and Gaveston. Isabella's stay at Langley cannot have been a happy one, for she seems to have been largely ignored while her husband and Gaveston spent their time fully making up for earlier absence by their daily sessions of intimate conversation. When Parliament met in February 1310, its mood was ugly. The barons appeared once more in arms in defiance of the king. So Edward sent Gaveston back north for safety while he and Isabella remained at Westminster. The king was now in a weak position, and he knew it. Parliament's condemnation of his rule was shattering. He was accused of corruption and extortion, heeding evil counsel, losing Scotland, and dismembering the crown without the Lord's assent, this last being a direct reference to Gaveston, whom the barons described as their chief enemy who was lurking in the king's chamber. But there was worse to come. On March 16th, the barons demanded that he agree to the appointment of a controlling committee comprised of 21 lords ordainers, whose brief would be the drawing up of ordinances or regulations for the reform of abuses within the government and the royal household. Their real agenda, however, and Edward was well aware of this, was the undermining of the royal prerogative and the placing of restraints upon the king. Edward protested strongly, but the barons held firm, telling him that unless he cooperated, they would no longer hold him as their king, nor keep the fealty they had sworn to him, since he himself would not keep the oath which he had sworn at his coronation. Edward had no choice but to capitulate. The names of the ordainers were announced the next day in the painted chamber. 
Foremost among the hardliners were Warwick, Hereford, Arundel, Lancaster, and Archbishop Winchelsea. Yet the moderates, Pembroke, Lincoln, Surrey, and Gloucester, were also of their number, and even the royalist Richmond. Within forty-eight hours, these lords had issued six preliminary ordinances regulating taxation and customs dues. By the end of April, Edward was trying desperately to reassert his authority and undermine the ordainers. Gaveston returned to his side before May 11th, and in June, Edward began seeking the support of Surrey, Richmond, and Gloucester. That month, to sweeten the barons who were grieved that he had not seized the initiative three years earlier, when the chances of success were greater, he announced his intention of leading a campaign against the Scots. His real motive for going north, however, was the establishment of his court away from Westminster, where the ordainers now held sway. Significantly, on July 6th, he appointed his loyal supporter, Walter Reynolds, who was not an ordainer, to the office of Chancellor. Reynolds, he informed the Pope, was not only useful but indispensable. Thus, the King was able to resume control of the Great Seal, the prime instrument through which he could wield executive power. Isabella was at Westminster with Edward when, in July, he formally accepted the preliminary ordinances. That month,